Uh, so this morning, if you have a Bible, go ahead and, and open it to the book of Romans, uh, chapter 12. As you know, we're in a, in a series studying uh, this chapter uh, of Romans 12. And, and let me just warn you from the get-go, um, I'm going to be really repetitive uh, in the beginning of this sermon. Um, there are some things that I'm going to say that you're probably like, I feel like Alan has said this every single sermon for the last few months. And if you're feeling that way, that's because that is true. I am intentionally doing that. Um, Because what I'm hoping to do through this series and, and what I was hoping to also do as we were studying the Gospel of Luke before we hit this series is I, I just want you to know without a shadow of a doubt who you are, where you fit in the biblical story, and the calling that God has put on you as a follower of Jesus. And so these are things we've been saying every single week. And I get you once a week. And so I'm trying to shape and form your worldview in regards to these things. As I just prayed, the topic that we're going to be talking about this morning from Romans 12 is this idea of how should we as the church, how should we as Christians engage with a culture around us that is not in agreement with the things that we believe or the values that we have? What should that dialogue and that engagement look like? What kind of influence should the church have? And what kind of influence should we try to have in the society around us? And so it's really, really important that before we even answer that question, that we understand who we are, how we fit into God's plans, and what God has called us to do as a part of that plan. We have to be clear on that first. So let's go back to Luke. If you remember, as we were studying the Gospel of Luke, as we got toward the end, one of the things we were saying over and over again is that the reason Jesus came, all right, the reason why he came in the flesh, his first coming, was to start a kingdom, was to bring a kingdom, a new kingdom that was not going to be of this world. And Jesus was not going to bring this kingdom with force. He was not going to bring this kingdom through ascending to political power or influence. He was not going to bring this kingdom through military might. No, he was going to bring this kingdom in a way that no one expected. In fact, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said that my kingdom at first, it's going to start like a little mustard seed. Really, really, really small. And no one's going to be able to recognize what that is, and no one's going to understand how that's going to grow or why that's an effective strategy for building a kingdom, but it's going to be really, really small. But through God's timing and in God's ways, through God's power, it's going to grow, and eventually Jesus will be the king over everything when he returns. That's where Luke starts. And here's the mustard seed. Instead of political power, instead of influence, instead of force, instead of military, Jesus was going to die on a cross. He was going to take the place, the most shameful place that he could, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he was going to make a way that sinful man could be forgiven of their sins, reconciled to their creator, 
and now a part of his kingdom, a part of his family. That's where Jesus is going to start. So here's the numbers. It starts with 11. Right? Jesus gathers his 12 disciples. Judas betrayed and fell away. You have 11 disciples. It starts with just them. They're the beginning of the kingdom. They're the ones who believe in Jesus. They're the ones who have given their lives to Jesus. They're the ones who go, okay, I see how this kingdom is going to start. Because Jesus is going to start it just in the hearts of people. Not through force, but through changing people's hearts. And so I want you to see this in in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. I'll throw it on the screen for you. I want you to see this. This is Jesus with his 11 disciples uh, after he's resurrected from the dead and before he ascends to be with the Father, Jesus says this. What it says, so when they had come together, that's Jesus and his disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So their question was, okay, we did the cross. We were confused by that, but I think we understand now. Buried, resurrected, just defeated death. Okay, clearly, now is the time that Jesus is going to establish his kingdom in full. He's going to take over. Now's the time to use the force, to, to, to grab political power, all of that. Is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? That's exactly what they're asking him. And Jesus said to him, ver, them, verse 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. God will grow this kingdom from a mustard seed in his way, by his power, in his timing. Okay, he's in control of all of that. It's not for you to know that. But you, verse 8, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses... In Jerusalem, that's their city, all of Judea, surrounding regions, Samaria, a little bit further out, and to the ends of the earth. So we get the answer to our questions. Who are we as followers of Jesus? Who are we as the church? We are those who have been changed, transformed, and rescued through the blood of Jesus on the cross and brought into his family and into his kingdom. That's who we are. Jesus has done that work in our hearts. And what have we been called to do? Well, it's exactly what we just read here in Acts chapter one. Our calling is to be a witness to that. Right, like what's a witness? A witness is someone who says, this is what I saw. This is what I experienced. I'm just sharing it with you. I'm a witness to what has happened to me. That's our calling, and that's the calling that Jesus put upon the disciples, and they started to be a witness to the gospel to all the people around them. They started the church, and it explodes, and that's why we're sitting in this room today, because of their faithfulness to be a witness and the continual faithfulness of the church to be a witness to the kingdom, to represent the kingdom of God. That is our calling. And I know I've been saying it over and over again. Our calling is to be representatives of the kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5 would say to be an ambassador of Christ. Literally someone who just speaks on his behalf. Right, so so my calling isn't to do it in my way. My calling is to say, I'm just trying to point you to Jesus. I'm trying to show, this this is the king, 
Here's his way. Here's how he does things. That's the calling upon the church. And so today we're trying to ask the question, well, then how should the church engage with the culture around us? And there's a lot of different answers that people have to that question. Uh, should, sh- is the calling on the church, is the thing that we should do is impose the kingdom on the world, impose our morality, impose our values, impose our beliefs on the church? Is that what we've been called to do? Well, I don't think so. That doesn't really jive with the way of Jesus that we read through the Gospels. It doesn't really jive, I think, with the mustard seed concept that it just starts in the hearts of people. But others might say, well, actually, no, we need to shrink back from the world around us. We need to disengage. We need to kind of batten down the hatches and, and not interact with the world. And let's just kind of protect our own. Let's try to follow Jesus within our walls. And let's not worry about the world and we'll wait for his return. It, is that how we're to engage? Well, I, I don't think you can find biblical support for that. But we do see in Acts 1, Matthew 28, and many other places in Scripture, know that we are called to go and to be witnesses, to be ambassadors, to be representatives of God's kingdom, to engage, not impose, not shrink back, but to engage with the world around us. And the question that I want us to answer is, how do we do this? Not just in the words that we say, but in the way that we live our lives, through our attitudes, our temperament, through the way that we treat other people. And that's why we've been in this study now, week three of Romans 12, a series that I've entitled, A Delight to Be Around. Because Romans chapter 12 is these series of commands in response to the entire letter of the Romans that help us to understand how we should treat people, how our relationships should look. How do we engage with people who disagree with us? How do we engage with people who persecute us? How do we engage with our enemies? And as we read Romans 12 together, we'll read a lot of it together today. Uh, the, The conclusion I come to is I think the church, we're called to be people who are a delight to be around. Even the people who disagree with us, even the people who don't like us, even the people that we would call enemies. And so last week, we dug into the commands of Romans 12, and we said these are fruits, right? Fruits in our life that are produced through our faith in the gospel. That that Romans 12 is a list of fruits that would blossom in our lives as we commit ourselves to believe implicitly what the rest of Romans has to say, verse chapters 1 through 11. Right, so we, we went down a list, if you remember. We, we did things like, okay, Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 3 just talk about how every single human being, including all of us in this room, were at one time lost, uh, not seeking God, uh, not righteous, um, under the wrath of God, Paul would say in Romans chapter 1. And so in Romans 12, when we get commands like, don't think of yourself too highly, don't be haughty, you know, don't be wise in your own sight, right? Those are connected to truths in Romans where when we begin to believe those, we begin to say, 
Well, of course, why would I think of myself highly when I know that I was lost without Jesus and he came after me? And it's only by his grace that I am who I am today. So, of course, I don't think of myself too highly. Or in Romans chapter 3, again, where it says, no one is righteous. But in Romans 5, it says, but God, even while we were sinning, Christ came after us and died for us. And then we go back to Romans 12 and it says things like, don't curse those who persecute you, but bless those who persecute you. We get to connect that back to Romans 5 and go, of course, because when I was an enemy of Christ, he didn't curse me. He blessed me. Or we read things in like Romans 8 that says, there's now therefore no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus, that Christ has fulfilled on your behalf the righteous requirement of the law and that nothing can separate you from his love. And then we connect that into Romans 12 where it says, listen, be patient in tribulation. Serve and love your enemy. We can connect it back and go, I have nothing to fear. There's nothing to panic because I know that who I am is secure in Christ and nothing can separate me from his love. So we looked at all of these fruits in Romans 12 and we connected them back to the truths of Romans, the truths of the gospel. And we said, these are fruits that grow in our life through our faith in the gospel. And if you missed that sermon last week, I just, I really encourage you to go Go find it on YouTube or podcast it um, because I think it's, it's such an important introduction to what we're going to dig into today. But this week, the question is, in light of the gospel truth that we've been talking about, in light of the gospel truth that's forming and shaping us and growing this fruit in our lives, how do we engage with the world around us, especially with those who would persecute, ridicule, or who simply disagree with what we believe. If you go to Romans chapter 12, look at verse 9 with me real quick. I'm just going to start here. Romans 12 verse 9 says this. It says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Now, this is a verse that I've seen. It's one of those verses that I think is constantly kind of plucked out of Romans 12 and uh, is taken out of context, and lots of implications are taken out of this verse. How do we do this? How do we abhor what is evil, especially the evil that we see in the world around us, and hold fast to what is good? Some would say that this verse gives us license as the church to, by any means necessary, impose what we believe is good on the world around us. Because we hate what is evil and we're trying to hold fast to what is good. And the verse is very clear. We are to abhor what is sinful and evil and ungodly. And we are to hold fast to what is good among us, absolutely. But does this mean that we have license to do anything by any means necessary to go impose what we believe about what is good and evil on the world? Is that the case? Well, I want us to look at Romans 12 because I think Romans 12 would say, no, it does not give us license to do anything. I have three points from Romans 12 that I want to get through on how we engage with the world around us. Three points. And how we engage, especially with those that we would, or 
uh, with people or systems or structures that are evil um, or uh, how we engage with people who would persecute what we believe. Three points from Romans 12. The first one, I'm just gonna give them to you now so you, can, you know our outline. Uh, the first one is we need to know our role as the church. The second one is we bless, honor, and serve, period. And third is we need to check ourselves. And so let's dig into Romans 12 together and let's see what these mean. So number one is this. The first point when it comes to how we engage the world is we need to know our role. As the church, we need to know our role. And I just spent the long introduction of this sermon trying to articulate to all of us what our role is, especially from Acts chapter one. Our role is to be witnesses, representatives of the kingdom of God. And I want you to look at Romans 12. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me. Look what it says. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never is an absolute word, right? But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, scholars debate what burning coals on their head means. All right, some would say, well, by doing good to your enemy, uh, hopefully through your actions, they might feel guilt and eventually change. Uh, some say, no, you're actually, you're, you're just being kind because you know that God will ultimately have justice. I think it's a little bit of both. But when we look at this verse, what's the theology we see here in Romans 12? What does this tell us about God? And what does this tell us about what we're called to do? Well, what I believe that we see in this is this, that God is responsible for the ends. We are responsible for the means. Let me say that again. God is responsible for the ends. We are responsible for the means. What is our role as the church when it comes to representing God's kingdom and engaging with the culture? We've already read it. We are to be witnesses and ambassadors to the king. So God, the king, he is the one who is sovereign God is the one with the plan. Remember Acts chapter one. No, God's the one whom by his authority has fixed times and methods and all of those things when it comes to the coming of the kingdom. The kingdom will come by his power in his way, in his timing. We are not responsible for that. We are responsible for the means. We are responsible for the way that we represent the kingdom of God to the world. Right? Remember Romans 5.8. While we were still sinning, Christ died for us. So God was implementing this plan before we were ever a part of it. And God in his grace comes in and says, I want you to be a part of it. And I'm going to use you. But I'm going to use you in, in my way and in my timing and with my methods. He includes us in his plan. And so here's the thing. When we believe that as Christians, we're responsible for the ends, meaning we are the ones responsible to, to make sure justice is accomplished. We are the ones that are responsible to make sure that our values and morals kind of spread throughout the earth, 
that we're the ones that are responsible to protect our nation from going down a you know, moral downhill. When, when we begin to see ourselves as the ones responsible for the ends of bringing the kingdom or protecting the kingdom, then what happens is we'll justify ungodly means. If we think we're responsible for the ends, we will justify ungodly means. If you look at world history, it it does not take a deep reading to see that when the church gains political power, when the church is drunk with political influence, when the church is trying to gain power and begin to impose, it doesn't go well. And what happens is we never represent the true way of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Because when we get into this mode of trying to impose, when we get into this mode of trying to kind of advance our moral agenda, here's what begins to happen, is we forget who we are, we forget the gospel, and we forget the way of Jesus when we begin to push our morals and our values on people. So instead of being a a witness to Jesus, we we just push our agenda. So let me give you an example. Like if you read the scriptures and if you're committed to the scriptures, like we are at Grace Hill, you know that the scriptures give us a different sexual ethic than what is generally accepted in the world. And the scriptures give us definitions of things like marriage that is generally not accepted in the world. But we're, we're people of the scripture, so we follow the king in, the, in his ways, all right? So this is what we believe. Obviously, there's friction. Obviously, there's disagreement on these things between the church and the world. And so what happens is, is when the church begins to feel like our responsibility is to push what we believe on these things on the world, to tell everyone, this is the way you ought to live, then what begins to happen is we inadvertently, we, we never wit, are witnesses to the king, we just push legalism on people, right? So when we go to the world and we go, y'all should live this way. Why? Because he said you should live this way. Well, I don't see him as king. Why should I do what he says? Well, you should anyway, right? What we're doing is we're pushing a legalistic message on the world that says this, he will only love you if you live this way. That's the only way he will love you. But, but wait, hold on. We just studied Romans. Like Romans 1 to 3, all of us were lost. Romans 5. But God did something about that. While we were still sinning, Christ died for us. Romans 8, there's no condemnation over us because Christ fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf. We didn't fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Right? So, so when we go to the world and we say, hey, he will only love you if you live this way, we're not representing the kingdom. We're not representing the way of Jesus. We're not being witnesses to what we've experienced. What did we experience? We experienced the grace and the mercy of God. And so our call as the church is to go to the world and say, hey guys, I just want to introduce you to him. Because we know what our role is. Our role is not to change hearts. Our role is not to be in charge of the ends. Our role isn't to push a moral agenda. Our role is to be witnesses to the king. 
representatives of the king, ambassadors of the king. Guys, in the scriptures, obedience is always motivated by grace. Like, go to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, all right, and and read the Ten Commandments. But if you go to Exodus 20, what is the first thing that you read? I am the God who rescued you from Egypt. I am the God who took you out of slavery. I opened the Red Sea so that you could be free. Now, here's how I want you to live. It's grace first, and then obedience comes. Where does our fruit grow out of? We talked about this last week. It comes from our belief in the gospel. Not because someone came and said, live this way. That's not where it comes from. And so to impose morality on society without gospel first, it means that we're getting our entire faith backwards. We're preaching a different religion. Our role is to be a witness to the king, to trust him to transform hearts. And what this means, church, can I just encourage you? This means that you have no reason to panic. Doesn't matter where the country goes. Doesn't matter what's going on in the culture around us. God has fixed the time in his way and his authority. He's bringing the kingdom. He's using us. He's responsible for the ends. And so we're just faithful to the means. And there's no reason to panic. Now, the question you might have is, okay, Alan, does that mean that we don't dialogue at all? That about these issues, that we just, hey, we're just here to proclaim the gospel and that's it. And, and no, I don't think that the calling upon us is to shrink back from these issues. So I think we just spent some time to say, okay, this is why we don't impose, but what does it mean to engage on these topics? And that is point number two. And that's this, we bless, honor, and serve, period. Bless, honor, and serve, period. We represent our king with gentleness, not harshness. I I can't read Romans 12 and then come away from it and, and figure out a scenario where harshness is okay. Let's read it, Romans 12. Let's just read verses 14 to 21. Look what he says. Paul says this, bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. We read this, but let's do it again. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, serve him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The reason why we are called to bless, honor, and serve even those who disagree or will ridicule us is because that's what Jesus did to us first. None of us would be in this room claiming the name of Jesus, believing in what he says about the forgiveness of our sins if Jesus didn't bless, honor, and serve 
those who were his enemies. That's why we do it. And so there's, there's so many ways that we could apply these specific commands in Romans 12. Uh, I mean, we could, we could talk forever on it, but, but here's where I want to go with it. Right, we, we live in a world where there's so much debate and there's so much fighting and there's so much rage. Don't have to convince you of that. And it seems like in every debate and argument, there's two sides, left and right. And both sides, their strategy is to build their straw man. And we know this, right? So what's the hot debate going out today right now? It's obviously over abortion because of the Supreme Court leak, all right? And the, um, what seems to be like the repeal of Roe v. Wade coming this summer, something that I, I celebrate. But when we look at the dialogue and the way that the church is engaged, right, both sides have their straw men that they just beat, right? So like, well, you know, the left, you know, they have their straw man that says, well, everyone who's against abortion, they, uh, uh, they're, they're not for women's health. They're not for body autonomy. You know what I mean? They don't care about health. And, and they just, it's their straw man. It's largely not true, but they just beat it. Y'all know that. The right side, same thing. They build their straw man. Everyone on that side, they're, they're murderers, some would say. Um, everyone, every abortion out there, the reason is just convenience. It's all evil. And I believe all abortion is evil. That's what I believe. But there's a, not a lot of ability or desire to get into the complexity of the issue. And here's the deal. Abortion is a really complex issue. If you serve the vulnerable, you find out that it's a really complex issue. But what happens is both sides have their straw man and they just beat it. And it's never been worse, right? Because of social media and because of cable news and things like that. So just apply any topic, not just abortion, but any topic, the straw man's come out, everyone starts beating it, and this is how the dialogue works. It's just how it works. And the reason for that today is because we just live in a society where it feels like, I don't actually think this is true, excuse me, but it feels like that if my voice doesn't go viral, if my voice doesn't get a lot of online engagement, if my voice doesn't stir up something, then my voice doesn't matter. It's the kind of society we live in. So everyone's going to the extremes. Everything you're seeing online, everything you're seeing on the news is just the extreme version of everything. Right, like I was thinking, I was reading an article the other day uh, about storm chasers, like who chase tornadoes. And they're saying it's becoming a huge problem because uh, there's like traffic jams of storm chasers now going after tornadoes. There are so many people who are chasing tornadoes that they're literally getting into traffic. And so when the tornado turns on them, they can't move. And the reason why this is happening, it's not because there's so many weather researchers and meteorologists out there going, trying to research it. It's because everyone's trying to go viral. Everyone's trying to get the awesome video and be able to post that and get all the likes. It pushes us to do extreme things or to have extreme rhetoric. But Christians are called to do it differently. We are called even to the people that we would disagree with in the, in the strongest possible way, we are called to honor, bless, and serve them. And how? Well, in our society and in our day and age and our culture, here's what it looks like. It means this. We never, ever misrepresent somebody and what they have to say. 
We read it in Romans chapter 12. We don't see ourselves as wise in our own eyes, right? So, it's, so, so we're being encouraged by the scripture to have an attitude and a self-view where I go, I don't believe I have all of the answers on this issue. I don't believe that I fully understand everyone's perspective. I don't believe that I am the authority and expert on this issue. I have the humility to say, listen, I have more to learn. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask lots of questions. You know, it's one thing uh, one of our pastors, Evan's been saying all the time. I hear him say it all the time. He's like, I just realized in our culture, no one asks questions anymore. Everyone just assumes they know everything there needs to be to know. So they can dialogue, they can uh, be an authority on an issue or a subject. But Christians are called to do it differently, to never misrepresent someone, to, to understand what somebody else would say about an issue so much so that if we were to re-articulate it to them and go, hey, did I honor you in how I represented your position? They would say yes. Because Romans 12, 17 says we need to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Not just in our own eyes. And so Christians are called to dialogue on these issues, especially issues that we disagree with, by going above and beyond to fully understand what other people are saying, to understand why they believe it, to not misrepresent them, to not over-exaggerate or slander or talk bad about them behind their back, but to engage in a way that they feel honored so that we can actually have a good conversation and represent our king. Because we don't represent our king well when we ridicule. We don't represent our king well when we misrepresent. We don't represent our king when we beat a straw man. And so we're called to bless and honor and serve even those who persecute us, to fully understand so that we can engage. And it just makes me wonder, where do we need to be more honorable as a church at large, not just Grace Hill, but the church at large, where do we need to be more honorable in our dialogue, in our discourse? You know, the CRT debate, gosh, so dishonorable. Just so much misrepresentation, so much exaggeration, so much extreme rage. We're called to be honorable people. Politics, all of these issues that when they come out of my mouth, you get nervous, right? We're called to be honorable. And that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. When we engage in these issues, are we being honorable in the sight of all? As far as it depends on us, are we seeking to live peaceably with all. So first one's know our role, witness to the king. Second is bless, honor, and serve, period. And number three is this, is we need to check ourselves. And this is what we've been talking about the last two weeks, right? The reason why we might struggle with things like what's going on in the world, or we might struggle with fear, or we might struggle with, uh, you know, how do we engage with the world? It might be because of stuff going on inside of us that we need to offer as a living sacrifice to God. Romans 12, one and two. Like what is our motivation when we go to engage with the world around us? Is it fear that the world is gonna win? You know, is it power? Power is intoxicating Is it comfort? Is it just a desire to be right? I just want to be right. I just want to slam dunk on someone. 
I think that we get snarky with people. I think we are tempted to be dishonorable in our dialogue with the world when we feel threatened. But Romans 8 says we don't need to be threatened. That Christ has accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished for his kingdom to come. And that there's nothing that can separate us from his love and that he will work all things for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so the third thing we need to do is check ourselves. What's going on inside of me that might be an obstacle to the fruit that I see in Romans 12? I just wanna end by encouraging you uh, with this. Acts chapter 19 is one of my favorite passages uh, in all of scripture. In Acts chapter 19, the apostle Paul is in Ephesus and he was there for two years just ministering the word of God to people, just preaching, just being a witness to the king, being faithful to the means that God has called him to, trusting God with the ends. Uh, Ephesus was his town. It had this huge temple in it, the temple to Artemis and all these people would travel to worship it. And there's a whole economy around the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. People who would make different statues and shrines and different things. And it was, it was a big business. There was a silversmith who had huge business because of the temple of Artemis. But something happened. As Paul and the church in Ephesus were just faithful to the means to be a witness to the king. And the gospel started to change people. And the gospel started to transform people. And what happened was the silversmith business started to decline and go down, right? The evil systems and structures of the city started to be dismantled, not because the church ran a campaign against it. They were just faithful to the means. And so what happens is there's this massive riot in Ephesus because the gospel is changing the city and literally impacting people's pocketbooks because evil business is being dismantled. And I love that vision. I love that vision of the impact that a little mustard seed can have. You know, I talked about these straw man arguments and sides and people fighting and all of this stuff. And, and you know, the reality is, is that all of that, right, that, that's all of the loud stuff we see in the media, but it's not real life. And in real life, in between the two straw men, between all the sides, between all of the fighting and harshness that we see in our society, there are broken people in the middle. There are vulnerable people in the middle. There are people who are lost in their sins and they need to hear the gospel. There are people who are oppressed and marginalized in our society that Jesus called us to go after in the middle there. The church hasn't been called to, to dominate the whole conversation and, and have hot takes and, and figure out a way to, to kind of move the conversation, the agenda. No, the, the, the church has been called to just go sit with those folks caught in the middle who are broken and need Jesus and be a witness to the king. Just one soul at a time. Like the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts so small. It starts with just being a witness to one person. And we don't understand the scalability of that. It's not our 
responsibility to understand it or control it or drive it. Our responsibility is to be a witness to the king. This is why the gospel in the church thrives under persecution and tends to shrivel when it gets power and influence. It's because the kingdom of God's like a mustard seed. It's, it's, it's one heart at a time. It's the being faithful to the means. And those are the things that God has said in all of his power and might, that's what I'm gonna bless. That's what I'm gonna multiply. That's what I'm gonna see spread into this massive tree. And my desire for Grace Hill is that we wouldn't be distracted by the national conversations. We wouldn't be distracted by all that's going on in the news and media. My hope and desire for this church is that we would be all in when it comes to being a witness to just our neighbor. Just our neighbor. Like, let's hyper-local. Hyper, don't worry about everything else. How are we witnessing, being a witness to the king, to the people in Herndon, Sterling, Reston, and Ashburn, and surrounding areas? How are we being a witness to the king, to our neighbors? Because those are the things that God's gonna bless. Those are the mustard seeds that God is gonna sprout into massive growth for his kingdom. Just being okay with our influence and our platform to just be local. We don't need to have a national platform. We don't need to have a regional platform. This church doesn't need to be massive. God doesn't advance his kingdom through huge churches. He uses huge churches, that's great. There's nothing wrong with it. But our platform is here and our neighbor caring for them, being honorable, being kind, being gentle, showing the way of Jesus, being a witness to the king. Let me pray. Father, I'm just so thankful uh, to be in a church that I, I actually really believe is is faithful to the things that we just said and talked about and read in your scripture. So thankful that here at Grace Hill, there are folks who go above and beyond to love their neighbors and folks who are just a witness to the gospel transformation that they have experienced in their heart and in their life. I'm just thankful for that, God, and I pray that you would protect us from trying to outscale your plans. Protect us from being dissatisfied with a mustard seed. I pray that we would be faithful to the means that you have called us to and trust you with the ends. And God, I pray that you would use us to advance your kingdom, to advance the gospel, and that we would see people's lives changed in the same way that you changed and transformed us. God, we're so thankful that while we were still sinning, you came and died for us. And I pray that that is how we would love the people around us here in Herndon and around Northern Virginia. In Christ's name, amen.